Hey everyone, it's Phantom Power, your podcast about sound and listening in the arts and humanities. I'm Mac Haygood. And today, as I speak to you, we are just five days away from a very special annual event for the, let's say, sonically minded. July 18th is World Listening Day, a global celebration and exploration of sound and listening held by the World Listening Project. Every year, they ask a sound artist or creative to select a theme for World Listening Day, and then there are events around the world and a 24-hour audio live stream. This year, Lisbon-based filmmaker, curator, and organizer Raquel Castro has given us the theme, The Unquiet Earth. You can find out more at worldlisteningproject.org or on their Facebook page where their handle is at worldlistening. So, in honor of World Listening Day, we are rebroadcasting one of my favorite Phantom Power episodes about listening, the show that Chris Cheek and I did on the renowned field recordist and composer Lawrence English. This episode gets deep into English's own listening practices as an artist, specifically a technique he calls relational listening. In fact, as you'll hear, he describes himself not as a sound maker, but as a professional listener. That's how central the act of listening is to his artistic practice. We've received so much positive feedback about this episode. I've had college professors tell me they use it as a listening assignment in their classes, which inspired me to start using it in my own sound studies class. And my students have been fascinated by the sounds and words of Lawrence English. It was really an honor to have him on the show, and I hope that you will enjoy this rebroadcast of episode four of our podcast, entitled On Listening In. This is Phantom Power. Episode four. On listening in. A hive of the sugar bag bee, endemic to northeastern Australia. The first notes of a piece called Hammering the Screw. objects, a 44-gallon drum, a ghost town in far northern Australia. Just some small extracts from recordings made by today's guest. It's Phantom Power, Sounds About Sound. That's Chris Cheek, 
and I'm Mac Haygood. Well, I'm Lawrence English, and I uh, have been described as a professional listener. Which does make me sound like a very second-rate therapist, <laughs> but um, it, it is the kind of thing that I spend a lot of time doing in my everyday. Is there is a lot of listening that goes on, and I suppose in some respects, you know, I'm increasingly interested in problematizing what that actually means. You know, what our relationship is with that way of of knowing the world around us. So, Chris, I'm really excited that you got this interview with Lawrence English. Yeah. Uh, I'm familiar with his work. Um, I always thought of him as the drone guy. You know, he does these really amazing and complex droning soundscapes. But uh, it turns out, as you've just shown us by playing that material, like that's not even the half of what he does. Yeah, that's right. He's a highly contemporary model of the artist scholar, I think. A prolific composer, there's at least 18 solo records and rising in the current millennium. He's a sound art researcher, an artist, a fine photographer, and he supports a ton of other artists through his highly influential imprint, Room 40, based in Eastern Australia, but genuinely servicing a global audience. Really interesting. So Chris, I know today you're going to walk us through some of Lawrence English's recent work, including this recreation of a piece by a godfather of sound art, Luke Ferrari, and also some of his more recent albums, such as Cruel Optimism and Wilderness of Mirrors. But what was it like talking with him? Did you find that there were any sorts of through lines to his work? One of the through lines that I found was that we were always coming back to talk about listening in relation to audience, listening in, in relation to to where you are, to context, um, listening as a kind of politics, collective listening. All of his projects are situated in relation to the, the act of listening. As both an artist and as a scholar, he's making an intervention into how we listen and how we filter sound. I always argue that we are much better at filtering sound than we are at actually listening to it. We're much more successful at filtering. Uh, and all you have to do is go outside and walk around for, for half an hour. Then you realize, actually, if you stop and then consciously listen, you will suddenly recognize all of this material that is going on around you that you have been very successfully filtering with almost no real uh, effort. And I think that's a, that's a great thing to be conscious of because even in social settings semantic listening we often still kind of have that going on and that's it's, it's you know it has implications for communication theory as much as it does for for a kind of aesthetic listening theory this is really interesting so just to get through our day we filter out the vast majority of what presents itself to our ears that's right but we get so poor at paying attention to what's going on around us that this even happens when we're listening to others, to the semantic listening he's talking about, listening to others' words. We filter those out too. Yeah, or we filter out 
part of what they're saying and focus on another part, the part that we want to focus on or the part that we're more comfortable with or familiar with. You know, this idea that somehow listening is this given, that we can just all do it all of the time, is, is a fallacy. You know, it's the same as any other kind of serious pursuit or practice. It needs training. You know, you look at a bodybuilder. A bodybuilder cannot lift 300 pounds straight away. They, they build up to that and they, they build techniques that facilitate them doing it in a way that allows them to maintain their strength over a certain period of time. Um, and I think it's the same, you know, listening can be very fatiguing. Uh, and, you know, you, you talk to people that are potentially introverts or something like that, it's very fatiguing for them to be out with lots of conversation going on and then trying to navigate their way through it. Um, and I think it's the same when you're going out and making field recordings. It can be a very, uh, it requires a lot of um, commitment and focus and energy uh, from you to, to apply yourself to those particular things as they unfold in time. Because if you lose that focus, they're gone. You know, you can never get those moments again. They're just there for that instant and then they're gone. So, Chris, this kind of focused attention to the sound of our lived environment, um, this is something we've spoken about, you know, in our previous episode with Brian House, um, but we really haven't discussed soundscape recording and, and what that is and the history of it. You've got to think about somewhat portable, reel-to-reel tape recorders. That makes a huge difference when you can start to take technology, carry it around with you to take it on journeys, uh, to take it to some place to record the sound of the place rather than just to record a concert in a concert hall. And somebody like Luke Ferrari, and he was an early pioneer in this field, is uh, known for being uh, an electro-acoustic musician, uh, combinations between uh, technology and acoustic sound. He's also known as being a kind of a progenitor uh, and a pioneer in the field of concrete music, music concrete, uh, a sense of listening to everyday life uh, with uh, acute perception or a kind of affective listening as Lawrence writes about. So, um, in 1968, Ferrari is attending a conference in what was at that point Yugoslavia and is now a part of Croatia, a small town, Vela Luka, on the seaside. Um, so we're 50 years ago, and he gets very fascinated by what he's hearing in the everyday environment.
by the sounds of how people move around that space uh, donkeys wagons carts uh, early uh, the, the kinds of engines that they're using to drive with or the kinds of engines that they're using to to manufacture with the sounds of the voices in the architecture and how the architecture affects the resonance of those voices uh, church bells cicadas in the treetops the, the the sound of the seaboard close by and how the the sound of the sea carries over the town at night and so forth he spends several days doing not much more than recording in various different parts of the town he made a composition it was about 20 minutes long called almost nothing prescrient and it's that piece that lawrence sets out to kind of recreate he goes back to that town 50 just under 50 years later uh, and re-records that town and listens to ferrari's uh, compositional arc and stitches something together that really is in a relational conversation uh, with the act of listening that Ferrari got engaged with. So Lawrence English is going back to the same town that Luke Ferrari originally recorded in some 50 years ago, and he's recording there again. Is that right? Correct. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, I think Velaluk is a very particular place uh, in that some things have changed a lot and some things have not changed at all. You know, it's quite extraordinary. I can say categorically there are less donkeys than there, there, there were in Ferrari's day, that is for sure. I did not. I don't believe I saw a single donkey walking, but now I would say there are a lot more scooters than there were before. But it was interesting. Certain things that the character of the architecture of the the space uh, was incredibly incredibly uh, similar because of the nature of the stone had not changed in the the sort of fifty years uh, since since either of us had been there. Some, in fact, some of the motors were, I'm pretty sure, the same as they were. It's just that probably I was able to record them in a slightly different way, uh, and I probably approached them quite differently uh, to the way that that Luke may have done that. And you know the the kind of language, the 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 the, uh, the accent there is very particular. And I think that is still very much the same. You know, when I play that to other people in uh, Croatia, they identify that as a very particular kind of accent uh, that you get in the Adriatic. Um, so I think. There's scales of time, I think, the expressions of time, and and that that the the material influences of sound us are, are at play there. You know, whether that be the kind of fixed architectural things, the thing that we understand maybe as space, it's in some ways constant. Uh, but then the implications of place, you know, how it is that we make the atmosphere that that sort of tenuous thing that we understand as place rather than space. Uh, has obviously shifted dramatically um, in that time, uh, and there's this weird tension there that exists between these things that are that are lingering and that are fleeting, and they're constantly kind of pulling at each other in really quite interesting ways. I 
I think uh, the interesting thing here is is Lawrence's engagement with Ferrari's act of listening uh, and feeling that he can hear sounds kind of weird but it's not totally weird that you can hear somebody else's listening inside their recording i think that for me is actually one of the pleasures of of field recording is that as a practice you're trying to uh, bring those things uh into focus or out of focus you know what it is that you're trying to capture out of a particular moment is so individuated It was very much about this kind of concept of, of relational listening, you know, around how it is that the, the, the interior psychological listening that we undertake and that the kind of external technological, uh, technological reception of the, of the prosthetic ear of the microphone, if you like, what that relationship is there, but also how it is that you interrogate or can interrogate your own capacities for listening. There are lots of different examples where there can be these situations where suddenly it's like, wow, okay, I was so focused on the bird in the tree that I didn't hear the highway behind me. Um, but the, the, the microphone has no interest in the bird or the highway. It's just interested in capturing sound. Yeah, this is a fascinating point. Because on the one hand, English is pointing out that the microphone hears everything. It doesn't filter out uh, sounds the ways that the human mind does, right? Um, it provides us more of a sense of everything that's going on within its technical capabilities. Um, but on the other hand, this brings us up to an important concept in Lawrence English's work, which is relational listening. So, and that's why for me, the relational listening idea was so kind of critical was that I recognized there is, these things are not naturally aligned, that we need to work towards that, not just our capacity as listeners, but our capacity as uh, being able to relate to the, the kind of auditory capacity of the microphone is, is really, it's critical if we're going to be able to reflect our listening through that lens, to use a, you know, physiocentric metaphor, um, you know, we, we have to kind of have that relationship there. We have to be conscious of it. It can't just be a given. It needs to be, it needs to be investigated. I am thinking about the, the question of the, how the experience of memory is continually mm. modifying our experience of listening. You know, I, I became quite interested in this idea of, Presque sort of existing as this sort of almost like mem memory construction. And I think for me, as I return to field recordings, in the same way that if you return to photographs, I think there's a certain capacity those documents or whatever you want to call them have for shaping uh, our, our memory. It's interesting, you know, that you can identify yourself or your 
presence in those things, even though obviously it's not necessarily represented in there. It might be visually represented if it's a photograph, but it, you know, like when I return to photo, when I return to field recordings, I, I, I can sense myself in the best, in the, in the ones that I feel are most successful, I can sense myself in those recordings um, because I'm sensing my listening in that moment. Uh, and I think for me, that's really the value of the field recording. When I, and what I love about people's work it, with field recording particularly is when I sense them in it. Um, whether that be the, the technical capacity that they have to to transmit that interest or sometimes just the very kind of fluid person, the, the kind of sense of personality that comes through in the way that people approach uh, a particular environment in that, in that, in that, in those moments. The key phrase that I've read from Lawrence is the idea of listening to the listeners listening. So if somebody goes outside like Luke Ferrari and records a particular sound, the trains in the train yard, for example, um, because of how they position their microphone, uh, because of how they frame uh, the material that the microphone records, what I end up listening to if I hear that recording is Luke Ferrari's listening in that particular place at that particular time. Yes, so a field recording isn't just a recording of sound, it's a recording of someone's listening, right. the person who made that recording. That sort of agency, that intentionality that we bring when we do the kinds of focused listening that Lawrence English was talking about earlier, that can sort of be heard through their recordings. You leave your mark on the recording, on the memory that you have constructed through recording. Right, and so that's the relational listening. Just a little minute, everybody, please. If you like the show, go rate us on iTunes, like us on Facebook, hit us up on Twitter. Helps us all to rise. So I was thinking about the diversity of the kind of things that Lawrence does and wondering what happens if you pay this kind of intense, close listening to conventional instruments the recording of them, and the production of the sound from them. Uh, I asked him quite specifically to give me an example of, of how he produces his sounds. Oh, is this where we get to find out how he makes those magnificent drones? <laughs> well, you know, the, the source for what you think is, uh, is a drone it does not sound the way you expect it to sound. The first sounds on... Uh, Wilderness of Mirrors is actually a, that kind of droning tone is actually a piano
played with an Evo, uh, but recorded very close and very hot. So, you know, a lot of the artifacting or the, the kind of harmonic distortion element of that sound is, is inbuilt into the recording. And for me, that's part of that idea, I guess, of framing and not being able to step back from something to, to kind of undo it is in the capture of that. Yeah, I definitely would not have thought that was a piano. And he said he's using an Ebo. That's really interesting. I, an Ebo is this little handheld device with a battery in it, and it's, it'll stimulate a steel string um, and make it vibrate. And it's usually used by electric guitarists, and it really changes the attack. So you don't hear the string get plucked. It just starts vibrating due to this magnetic field. Um, and so the attack, the beginning of the note, really gets changed and it often makes a guitar sound more like a violin. So he's using this on piano strings. That's really cool. Right. And uh, I like this term that he uses, recording something hot. To mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Getting, t- turning the levels up and, and getting these harmonics of distortion going super close miking contact mics and so forth to get very different kinds of resonances out of their instruments and he's making this decision from the get-go he's not recording a clean signal so to speak and then adding distortion later in the computer he's he's doing it in real time and listening carefully as he does it he's committing in some respects, I guess it reflects the practice in, in listening and field recording that I'm choosing, uh, making a decision in that moment, and that decision is the decision I need to live with. So I need to think about it there and then, rather than this idea of being able to go back and change things later, which for me, I totally understand in some circumstances that's really critical. But for the work that I do for myself, uh, I want there to be decisions made that are irreversible, that, that can't be changed, that in some respects shape the way that the future of the work will, will become, you know, that there's a kind of pressure or a weight that gets behind uh, the way that the work is developing. Um, and you can't really return to a, a, a sense of ground zero or to get back to the roots of that thing. I like the fact that uh, some of those decisions are, are sort of hardwired and, and they inform what comes after them. And there's this kind of additional pressure, material pressure,
And so I bet these swelling drones, these fields of of sound that I normally experience through my headphones or a speaker must be an incredible experience live. Yeah, I think I used the word visceral uh, to describe the experience of the sound. It's almost as if your body is being taken over by the sound. Your body, your body mind, your psyche is being uh, occupied. Is that something he thinks about in terms of live performance? The bodies of of the audience? Yeah, absolutely. He talks about the embodied listener. Yeah, I mean, that's actually a lot of the particular, I suppose, with the sort of performative end of what I'm doing. That's very much what I'm interested in, this sort of synesthetic nexus, I suppose, that exists between audition and sensation, you know, the, the, the transitional points where sound falls out of our our sense of acoustic audition into the sort of realm of the flesh you know there's that very powerful moment where sometimes you recognize yourself as in like your body in the sound in a way that you don't necessarily get in everyday life i think that's actually kind of one of the powerful things about concerts is the opportunity for that to be realized particularly now you know with the the, the kind of quality of sound systems that are available and that kind of thing um but it's also interesting as a kind of collective experience, because I think for me it's actually, and I say this quite often um, when I'm talking just before concerts, is you know it's, it is a very powerful metaphor the fact that we can all come together to this place, and we all have these very individuated experiences, whether they be the psychological uh, experiences of, of of how the music affects us, or uh, whether they be the physiological way that our bodies resonate in that that time and place, and everyone will have those very different to one another but we're sharing this common time and place together and for me that's a really kind of interesting metaphor for the idea of community where we do have all these different opinions and different kind of values systems whatever but we can come together and share these things and have a dialogue whether it be just you know a purely kind of sensory dialogue or something more afterwards it's very powerful i think to kind of think about it in those terms that it's not just this very simple appreciation of uh, performance, but there's, there's other resonance that you can kind of think about, a social resonance. Partly it's, I was, uh, Judith Butler's most recent books about um, public assembly, you know, this idea of a sort of performative language for public assembly, I think it's really interesting um, because it does lend itself, I think, to, to having readings that are outside protest, you know, that are about different kinds of gatherings. Uh, and, and, you know, obviously she touches on those. something like cruel optimism or wilderness and mirrors is entirely born out of these interactions with the the broader socio-political cultural sphere you know i don't i'm not one of these people that can just make music for the sake of it I, i tend to work much better when i'm trying to address uh a particular theme or difficulty or whatever the case might be i i like a frame and i like it to be tightly bound i think there is great energy to be absorbed out of being bound and that the kind of pressure that that brings um (laughs) constraints working with constraints absolutely and i think it's one of those things that for me is more and more important um and also because i think it breeds a certain intensity to the way that the work can be expressed
So you did this interview a little while ago, but you asked him what he had coming up next, and um, that sounded pretty interesting too. Right. So here he is talking about a piece called Wave Fields that premiered on the Gold Coast in Australia in early April this year. I'm working on a, a sort of very long duration, 12-hour piece actually, which will be performed uh, uh, on next to a kind of beautiful headland and Burley Heads, Jirabilum, which is a kind of very significant indigenous site. And uh, people were invited to come and sleep on the beach, 200, 300 people sleeping on the beach together. And uh, overnight, basically, and the, the, the piece sort of runs from dusk until dawn. And it's a very interesting process for me because obviously a lot of the work is to do I've, I've been very interested in the way that sounds sort of operates in sleep for a long time but this is probably a very particular investigation into that because I'm also working with the kind of natural environment the idea of that the waves are very present there very strong sound based so it's like how do all these things speak to each other and how do they speak to each other in a way which facilitates various kinds of uh, you know levels uh, to which the sound can be uh, participated in or experienced in for people, you know, whether that be conscious or subconscious in this case. So wait, this is a concert where you actually have permission to fall asleep? Yeah. And uh, I've had that experience too. It's a too long a story, but at the beginning of the Japan Festival with the no performance in London, mm. uh, the, guy, the, the guy who was the Japanese cultural ambassador said, feel free to go to sleep. Yeah, because whatever you see when you wake up will be the essence of no. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> so he's encouraging people to think about the function of sound and hearing during sleep. When I think about the history of how it is that our ears have operated, they they have been our greatest security device. You know, once in those very early days when there was the campfire and nothing else, you know, it was our ears that, that told us that the wolves were coming for us or that the bear was behind us, whatever the case might be. Our eyes failed us, but our ears kind of opened up the dark. You know, you have those moments occasionally where you are out somewhere and you don't necessarily know a space and it's dark and you hear whatever it might be, a twig snapping, footsteps, whatever it is and you feel in your body a very visceral tactile response to that audio information that still somehow ties us back to that ancestral sort of way of um, you know steering clear of trouble in the dark And that's it for this episode of Phantom Power. Thank you to Lawrence English. Today we heard a little bit of sound by Luke Ferrari while Chris was talking about him. But other than that, all of the incredible sounds you heard today were by Lawrence English. We've got some great shows lined up for the coming weeks, including English professor Jennifer Stover on her new book, The Sonic Color Line, sound artist Leah Barclay on acoustic ecology, 
and ethnomusicologist Langston Colin Wilkins on the slow, loud, and banging sounds of Houston's hip-hop car culture. You can learn more about Phantom Power and find transcripts and links to some of the things that we've heard and talked about at phantompod.org. And those transcripts take uh, a little time to write up and drop, so I think we're up to uh, episode two. We're catching up, so please be patient with us on that. You can also subscribe to our show at phantompod.org or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you'd rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Tell us what you thought about the show on Facebook or give us a shout on Twitter at phantompod. Our interns are Natalie Cooper, Nicole Keshock, and Adam Whitmer. And Phantom Power was made possible through a generous grant from the Miami University Humanities Center and the National Endowment for the Humanities. Thank you.